This is Pen Dust Radio. Welcome, all you literati, you lovers of words and tales, you who need a break in your hurried, harried lives. We have a salve for your soul with stories imaginative and original. Short stories, riveting fiction, and wildly creative nonfiction. Pen Dust Radio. Definitely not the same old story. Please visit us at pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. We publish literary fiction and creative nonfiction. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com. We all make choices and then must live with the consequences, intended or unintended. In this story, Chase reluctantly returns to the middle-sized, middle-class, midwestern town he grew up in and had previously left as quickly as he could. As a college kid, he rejected the town as bourgeois and closed-minded. He also separated himself from his family more than he realized and missed out on some of the positive aspects of his hometown. In a moment of nostalgia during a visit back home, he tours the town and reconnects with unlikely allies, two people he had nearly forgotten. In the process, the impact of an old judgment becomes visible in the overhead light of experience and maturity. Author Tim Jones is a fiction writer living in Northern California with his wife and two children, and when not writing, is engaged in an active business career. He grew up in Michigan, and in first grade actually did witness a kid sticking his tongue to a frigid metal pole in the middle of winter. This is a work of fiction. Under Overhead Lights Written by Tim Jones Read by Gil Bonson Riverside is one of those insular, middle-class suburbs that no one ever seems to leave, where graduates of the award-winning schools step out into the mean world for a few years only to rush back and buy a house on the same street where they grew up. They talk proudly to one another in a kind of native code and smugly assume that the jerks in the other towns are all jealous. It's an enclave, and the ultimate reward is to just belong. Chase had never quite understood all of that and left town as quickly as he could. True, he had marched in the parades, had worn the town's green and gold, had shout-sung the fight song, and grew transfixed by the tribal magic of rubber soles slammed in cadence on shaky aluminum bleachers, offering his young voice to the clannish chant that ascended into dark, cold nights. I believe, stomp, stomp, I believe, stomp, stomp, I believe, stomp, stomp. A fuzzy R was stitched onto the thick felt of his varsity jacket right over his heart. That letter and the cheers and shouts told the rest of the Tri-Valley the simple folk in Sandersville, the drudges in Athens, and the hick in Junction, the riverside was a better place, its people superior. Chase had believed this instinctively and unquestioningly until the fluorescence of blind faith began shorting out and dimming somewhere around the end of his last varsity football season. Neighbors, teachers, and friends started asking him what was next. They knew that Chase dreamed about attending the prestigious state school whose marquee name evoked brick towers graced by ivy, Nobel laureates, and foreigners. 
Most in Riverside favored the state's second biggest school. A still honorable but more lenient purveyor of degrees, with better nightlife, and whose name still looked pretty darn good on a resume. Chase's aspirations seemed contrarian to most, and elitist to some. They were puzzled by his answer to the usual follow-up question. So you're coming back to Riverside after college, right? Nah, I'm thinking Chicago, maybe, you'd say. They'd look at him with a curious, sour mix of perplexity and pity, as if he had just announced his intention to sell meth out of a communal yurt shared with anarchists. The response was usually a variant of three strains. Well, okay, I guess. Or, what's wrong with Riverside? Or, does your mother know about your plans? Their apparent distaste for self-fulfillment and dour preference for familiarity over adventure left Chase puzzled. In his freshman year at the big university, Chase came to know a few kids from neighboring towns. The thin homespun thread of the Tri-Valley region seemed a comforting lifeline in the rollicking gales of change they all found themselves in. One of the kids, Josh McCready from Athens, had a car and was generous with lifts back home on weekends. Though they were all cool, Chase saw them through a sort of benevolent, good-natured elitism, as if he was being charitable by pressing his thigh against theirs in McCready's cramped car. It was on one of these rides, making their way home for midwinter break, the Chase's growing uneasiness and his ache to be different seemed to coalesce. Lauren, from Sandersville, flicked on the car's dome light as the last tepid rays of dusk faded into the gray winter slush. She purposefully thumbed through a textbook under the small square light that dribbled a sallow wash around the car, making ghostly reflections bounce on the windows. Chase glanced at her over the head of Kylie, a diminutive former swimmer from Junction, who snoozed in the small wedge of back seat between them. McCready jabbered in the front with Becker, another guy from Athens. Chase watched Lauren hold the book at different angles under the feeble light, squinting and frowning dejectedly before snapping it shut. She slumped back, sighing and poking out her lip. Chase studied the plump curve of pouting pink, struck by how the waxy dome light trapped in the window's blue-gray shadows brought her face into mysterious alluring relief. Chase became enamored. Isn't that right, Chase? He heard Becker call from the front, shattering his sweet contemplation. Isn't what right? The cops in Riverside, Becker said. They tail anybody from out of town, harass them if they think they don't belong. Where did you get that? Me and McCready were just talking about it. This kid we know got roughed up pretty bad over there. You know about stuff like that, Chase? McCready smiled, glancing over his shoulder. Uh, no. It's common knowledge, said Lauren. If you look like you have money, they leave you alone. But if they think you're not Whitey McRichville, you're in trouble. They almost threw my cousin in jail just because she was driving a crappy car. Wait a minute. My brother's a Riverside cop, Chase said. I never heard of that. Of course not, said McCready. They keep it quiet. But everybody knows, Baker said. Yeah, I heard that too added Kylie, yawning and drubbing her eyes. Supposedly, everybody in Riverside takes an oath to keep the place pure, keep outsiders away, and report their neighbors if they get a little subversive, said Becker. How about it, Chase? asked McCready, eyes burning in the rearview mirror. You take any oaths for dear old Riverside? He assumed that everyone would start cracking up, but the car was quiet except for the drone of tires on the road. The little dome light suddenly poured out heat and became luminous. 
He felt Kylie twist herself away, scooting towards Lauren, pulling away from the thigh that had pressed into his. In the dome light's glare, he saw the faces of those back home, the smug, the content, and the intolerant, who had cheered for him while he wore their colors, but disdained his need for more than middling comfort and tasty municipal water. He suddenly imagined his neighbors, friends, and even family lighting pyres to protect their city on the hill, pantheon to small dreams, and all things slightly above average. Chase swallowed, taking in the faces of his friends. Yeah, there are some real pricks in Riverside, he said, but I'm not like that. I can't wait to get out of there. I'm not rich. I worked construction all summer to pay my tuition. Over that summer break, he looked suspiciously at Riverside. The troubling code had been unsealed. He also found himself consumed with thoughts of Lauren. Chase desired her Sandersville beauty, but more so delighted at kindling a romance that would surely be decried in town as rebellion. It turned out that Lauren had a serious boyfriend, so Chase settled for just staying away from Riverside. For four years, he found reasons to stay within the funky and free-thinking bubble around the university's tree-lined courts. He learned to slurp ramen and dig reggae and EDM. He kissed girls with rods in their eyebrows and felt the ticklish sunlight of ideas and principles. Notes and rhymes poured into his mind, and he marveled at its stretching, understanding in contrite moments how small it had been before. Everybody always comes back to Riverside, his mother said. And for his sister Angie and his brother the cop, this was true. They both bought homes there and raised kids who would attend his old school. Chase moved to Chicago after college and regaled them on holidays with tales about his world's travels and eating foods he knew they would find disgusting. His mother knew that this rebellion was only temporary. When are you coming home? She asked him one Christmas. Her tender look had made him mumble, Maybe someday. But he knew the answer was really, never. When Chase was 28 years old, at a big family meeting, hastily arranged for a niece's sixth birthday party, his mom calmly, almost cheerfully, revealed her diagnosis. On top of the raw, black stew in his queasy gut, he felt a cold prickle of unspoken resentment. Everyone assumed she had shoehorned this announcement because Chase had dropped by, squeezing in the kid's party on the way to his old college roommate's wedding. His brother and sister huddled with their spouses in gray-faced stoicism, talking in a peculiar, inbred code to each other. Chase fumbled to discramble their code from his awkward stance outside their circle. He dutifully made trips home, but didn't like to stay in the house where he grew up. Though this didn't please his mother, she protested only perfunctorily. He left each night after he was sure she was asleep and drove a rental car back to the Marriott, 40 miles away in Bloomington. On a brisk Wednesday night in October, he stepped onto his mother's front porch to head back to the Marriott. He felt the brace of the autumn wind and caught the scent of wood smoke. The sweet, acrid char on the breeze made him think of bonfires, and he remembered playing football under a dome of white sodium light. Tinny horns blared earnest and fierce, and drums beaten while pretty girls in sweaters thrust fists into the night and exhorted the crowd, I believe, stomp, stomp. I believe, stomp, stomp, I believe, stomp, stomp. Feeling nostalgic, Chase got in his rental car and drove it down the winding street he once knew well instead of heading the opposite way towards the interstate as he usually did. The car's headlights probed the cold black like the flashlight beam of an explorer in an ancient cave 
sealed off and abandoned years ago. He was driving through Middlesex Woods subdivision, its neo-Tudor-style homes with turrets, balconies, wrought iron, rough-cast pargeting, and fieldstone that once seemed fitting prizes. Chase sighed, despairing these artless imitations of grandeur, optical traps to reel in the gullible, those with primitive standards who wouldn't look too closely. He eventually rolled up to his old elementary school, a flat-roofed, yellow-bricked stab at mid-century modern. Chase parked and walked onto the playground. A security light lashed to the building's side, slung a bright wedge of light across the dirt. A tetherball, pushed by the October breeze, rolled lazily around a tall metal pole, looked like a lazy performer on the stage of a pathetic one-man show. Here, Chase remembered, had once stood a jungle gym of galvanized tubes formed into a labyrinth of ladders and bridges, with a crow's nest at the top and a rudimentary zip line to the side that never seemed to work. One frigid January in second grade, a kid named Neil Cushing, who had hair like a Brillo pad and wore thick-rimmed glasses with bulging, hazy lenses, stuck his tongue to the jungle gym's bare metal at the highest peak. He bleated furiously for a while, then left half his tongue when he jumped to free himself. What an idiot, Chase thought, laughing aloud. It was after ten, and he considered doubling back towards the interstate, but the old playground had intrigued him. Instead, he headed past the new strip mall where the old lumber yard had been, and past a few chain restaurants that had popped up since he left, fiddling with the car's radio as he drove. What a fool believes, crackled through the speakers from the town's only station, a little FM outfit that had always played innocuous, feel-good songs that everyone unenthusiastically kind of liked. He had a flashback, remembering the station had always been playing in his dad's car on rides to school with Angie. He smiled, remembering how they bickered, her derisive nickname for him, Toilet Face, matched in cruelty only by his for her, Stink Pits. Amazingly, they had mocked this same song when Chase was about nine or ten years old, giggling over Angie's theory that the singer had instructed a minion to administer a massive wedgie so that he could hit the high notes. Chase laughed as the singer's shrill falsetto unleashed itself, soaring along with the snappy wheedling of a synthesizer. He thought the song, a relic of feathered hair, big beards, and arrowhead medallions swinging under open collars, was old, even when he was a kid. And they're still playing it in Riverside. He snapped the radio off. Chase was trying to remember the shortcut to the interstate when he noticed Crazy Jerry's. Sodium lights atop tall poles cast a pickled, witchy dome in the dark like a shimmering, translucent bowl turned upside down over the empty parking lot. Under the lights sat a low concrete bunker whose side was chipped. Faded, hand-stenciled enamel announced beer, wine, lotto, cigs, low prices. The place seemed to glow in the inky cold as if it were a wonderland. Impulsively, Chase made a hard turn into the light's canopy and onto the oil-stained asphalt. An illicit, slightly naughty thrill wormed through his gut. Crazy Jerry's had always been thought of as a little seedy. He parked, recalling as he got out of the car the frail, trembling spinster named Jolene, who sat fixed to the stool behind the register, seemingly every night since his childhood. Everyone knew old Jolene. She was rumored to have poisoned her husband back in the 60s and gotten away with it. 
Her rheumatism was said to be so crippling it prevented her from checking IDs for alcohol purchases. A bleating, iridescent buzz from the overhead lights stung Chase's ears as he nervously opened the door to the store. He glanced at the checkout in the perverse hope of seeing old Jolene, but was disappointed to glimpse a younger woman in her place. He ambled towards the coolers. A scant, musty lilt overpowered the faint scent of ammonia. Chase chuckled at the racks of greasy chips, puffed snack cakes covered in cellophane, and the cases of watery, cheap beer stacked on the floor. But suddenly, Chase felt the need to move, the need to get out of Crazy Jerry's, out of Riverside, and retreat to the Marriott and civilization. He pulled a Pepsi from the cooler, a nostalgic native son morphing into a thirsty stranger, just passing through any random town in America. Chase? called the woman behind the counter. I thought that was you. What are you doing here? She seemed delighted, and her tone implied a casual intimacy that stunned him. Oh, hey, he said, smiling automatically. Her face seemed familiar, but it had a generic, earthy wholesomeness. Not fetching or repellent. It could have belonged to many women. A field of freckles dusted her cheeks. Her skin was bare of makeup, except for thin indigo strokes on her eyelids. Flailing, he thought the face matched that of a girlfriend from Chicago, perhaps that unpretentious tax attorney who disdained cosmetics. You don't remember me, do you? She said with a mischievous chuckle. I'm Faith. It seemed to Chase like a code word for which he was expected to have a countersign. He became conscious of his dim-witted look, like a bystander in the local TV news report's crowd shot, mesmerized into simple-mindedness by the sight of the camera. Faith Gorham, she said laughing. As she said her name, he noticed the five white letters, F-A-I-T-H, embossed in a black plastic name tag clipped to her shirt. An instant rush of images came to mind, like old picture discs viewed through the plastic eyehole of a child's toy. He remembered his first tortured run on the middle school cross-country team, and that Faith Gorham was among the first in his class to sprout tall. Her slender legs looked good in gym shorts. He remembered a passing crush on which he never acted. She drifted to the drama kids in high school as he became a jock. Aside from often being in the same upper-level math classes, their orbits didn't intersect much at Riverside High. An image of her singing furiously, fearlessly, in the lead of one of the school musicals, senior year perhaps, flashed by him, but he was unable to remember which production it was. Faith! he shouted. Of course I remember you! They both smiled at each other, but neither seemed to know what should come next. Chase noticed a sizzle resonating from the blackened end of a flickering fluorescent tube overhead, the only sound in the store. Wow, he said finally. Yeah, wow, Faith said, shaking her head. I never thought I'd run into you. Well, I thought the next time I saw you, it'd be on Broadway, he laughed, pleased with his smoothness. Faith jerked her eyes down to the floor, the smile falling from her face. Oh, well, I, she said, fumbling with breath mints displayed by the cash register. Suddenly Chase felt warm. Was it coming from the buzzing fluorescent? He and Faith had both been good students math whizzes. He was a jock, and she was a drama geek. He had assumed she too would have escaped Riverside. Both 28 years old. He was a civil engineer in Chicago, while Faith worked the night shift at Crazy Jerry's. Well, you were always such an amazing singer, he rushed, 
and a great actor, too. I mean, I just figured— Crimson pulsated underneath her freckles as Faith touched her lips and stifled an embarrassed giggle. Thanks for remembering, but that was a long time ago. He considered asking her how she had come to be here, but couldn't think of an angle that didn't sound patronizing. Fortunately, she brought up a few old classmates, and they were able to chat a while blithely with amped-up cheer. They both relaxed. Chase noticed a sparkle in her eyes whenever he cracked a joke and remembered his adolescent crush as he studied and appreciated her simple good looks. He became sweetly enamored as possibilities for this cold night unfolded in his mind. Maybe he would spend the night in Riverside after all. He waited for an opening, and when it came, smiled in a way suggesting a crazy thought had just occurred to him. He turned a line over in his head, seeking the wily tone a sophisticated urbanite might use to begin seducing a plain drama geek nearing thirty and stuck in Nowheresville. So, what's it like to be single around here? Chase asked. You're single, right? I'm sorry to hear about your mom, Faith said, as if she had not heard the question. Chase looked at her, puzzled. She must have understood because she laughed knowingly, then explained cryptically, Your sister. When he showed her that he could not unravel her code, she smiled as if she understood and found it sweet and endearing. Angie and I go to the same gym, she said. We talk on the treadmill. It's Riverside. Everybody knows everybody else's business. Chase imagined the townspeople, his sister and his brother and Faith, all pumping arms and striding on rotating belts, chattering, burning time, and sticking in the exact same spot. And being blissfully happy. He considered it a good metaphor. The door to Crazy Jerry's opened, and the frame of a large man loomed. He stopped not making a move to the coolers or racks of chips, and his stillness began to concern Chase as he glanced toward him. Faith looked over but appeared uninterested, as if this was just a regular customer. Thought you ditched Riverside for good, the big man finally said. With thick muddled cognition, Chase realized that the remark was meant for him. He wheeled around, this time making a connection quickly. Viking, he said. Haven't been called that in a long time, Chase, he said, a smile dissolving his stony gaze. The long locks of blonde hair, volumized, nutrient-rich, and frizz-free as those of any cover girl or metal band drummer, had once made Brett Gerhardt's Viking nickname obvious. His hair was now cut short, but Chase recognized the towering frame, piercing blue eyes, and Nordic features. They had known each other since kindergarten, but Brett's family lived on the edge of town and there were always whispers about a bad home life. His older sister, younger than Chase's sister Angie, got pregnant and dropped out of school. His mother was said to be a drunk, and his father abusive. Chase gravitated to football and honor society. The tall Viking led the Burnouts, a small band of tough, disaffected mavericks who smoked unapologetically and wore scuffed biker boots, metalhead t-shirts, and black jeans. Long chains clipped wide trucker belts to their back pockets, jangling on a hip. Chase and Brett had worked together as construction laborers the summer after graduation. Chase was a little afraid of Brett. They never became friends, though they got along fine. Chase often found himself surprised by how clearly and well Brett spoke. He had incongruous normalcy away from the burnouts, and a philosophical, almost poetic bent that Chase's late teenage brain always seeking inalienable truth, had enjoyed. 
Brett pulled him close in choppy, masculine clutch, and Chase smelled a bracing, sweet booziness. Brett's eyes wobbled, the blue irises seeming to float lazily on a sheen of pink and red. He was both amused and confounded by the randomness of these two peripheral acquaintances from starkly different ranks of a social hierarchy he no longer cared about. He wondered if Faith and the drama geeks had known the Viking or any of his burnouts. We got catching up to do, buddy, Brett smiled, jerking his head toward the door. My car's outside. Let's go have a beer. Chase allowed Brett's strong hand to steer him out the door, shrugging comically at Faith to register his submission as befuddled graciousness. She turned her back and began restacking cigarettes on the wire rack behind the counter. He followed Brett across the crumbled asphalt to a tired-looking sedan. The Bondo blemishes and chalky spiderwebs in its paint seemingly magnified under the bright dome of the sodium lights above. The car's ragged appearance didn't surprise Chase. He sat down cautiously in the passenger seat. Where are we going? he asked. Brett shrugged. Right here's fine. I gotta pick up my wife in a little while. I'd love to go get hammered with you somewhere, but can't tonight. Brett reached into the back seat, moved a bucket caked with splattered drywall mud, and produced two cans of beer. Uh, that's all right. I got something going on tonight anyway. Well, maybe. So, you're married? Brett nodded slowly, taking a long pull of his beer. Awesome, Chase said, slapping Brett's shoulder. You guys live in town? Brett took another swig, seeming to appreciate the taste, then finally nodded. Do I know her? Probably, Brett said, chuckling. Everybody in Riverside knows everybody else. Taking a sip of beer, Chase felt the frustration of being talked to in code again. So, what are you doing now, bro? Brett asked, grinning. I'm a civil engineer. I live in Chicago. How about you? Swinging a hammer, Brett said. Working construction. Same job I had when you and I worked together that summer. He drained the can and reached into the back seat for another. Chase looked at Brett with his back pressed to the door and an elbow on the steering wheel, as if to steady himself as he drank. He glanced into the back seat at the drywall bucket, a pile of tools, and the torn-open case of bargain beer, a few cans tumbling from its slit. He looked through the windshield at the view of the town beyond them mottled by the grimy film and cracks peppering the glass that diffused the iridescence of the sodium light overhead. Draining the beer, Chase noticed the smell in the car, like the matted hair of an old dog had been burnt, then extinguished with cherry Kool-Aid. He felt sorry for Brett, trapped in this crappy car, and trapped in a town that didn't want him. It all worked out, though, Brett said. No place I'd rather be than good old Riverside. Really? Chase said. He thought of Brett puffing a cloud of cigarette smoke in the uptight faces of the better-offs in town. He was a guy probably used to being rousted by Chase's brother, the cop. I guess that surprises me a little, Chase said. Why? Brett laughed. Because I used to be king of the burnouts? Classic youthful rebellion, Brett pronounced. Yeah, Chase said, unconvinced. Through the cloudy, pitted windshield, he watched Faith push a broom down the aisles of Crazy Jerry's. Drink up! Brett said, handing him another beer. They reminisced a while. Brett's knowledge of old classmates, most of whom had returned to Riverside, seemed encyclopedic to Chase. Sounds like I'm the rebel, Chase said. We all make our choices. But why does everybody come back to Riverside? Chase took a drink, feeling emboldened, 
And you, Brett? I get why you had to stay, but... What do you mean? He said, stiffening. You think I didn't have choices? Brett rubbed his square jaw a long while, and Chase grew guilty as the silence lingered. I had choices, Chase, Brett said quietly. Maybe not as many as some, but I chose my life. And yeah, I chose Riverside. Choose it still. No regrets. So, Chase said, remembering the Viking's old philosophical bent and feeling more liberated by his growing buzz. This town was never all that good to you. Don't you feel like you're missing out? Not really, he said, tossing his empty can into the back seat. Do you? The question startled Chase. What would I have missed out on? He said without thinking. Chicago's not automatically better than Riverside, Brett laughed. Riverside's not automatically better than Sandersville. I know what I want. It ended up being here. We all make choices. You get some things, you give up some. Question is, was what you gave up worth the trade? Chase peered through a spidery cavity in the windshield its crystal rubble twisting the ethereal sodium glow of the parking lot into prismatic threads and spikes. He thought of Middlesex Woods and Neil Cushing, his sister Angie, his brother the cop, and his mom. What a fool believes, echoed again in his head as he fumbled for the slippery edges of a piece of the Riverside Code. We both rebelled against Riverside, just in different ways, and we both made choices, Brett said. You know. Sometimes the things you thought you saw in the dark, things you were dead solid sure about, turn out to be different in the light. Brett drummed his thick hands on the steering wheel. Well, it's late, bud. Time for me to go pick up my wife. You've been drinking, Brett, Chase said, concerned. I'll give you a ride. I got a rental car right over... Brett interrupted with a laugh. Don't worry. I play rec softball with your brother, the cop, and all the other Riverside cops. Besides, I don't have to go far. He opened the door and ambled back towards Crazy Jerry's. Chase followed groggily. So where does your wife work? Chase asked. Right here. Your wife works at Crazy Jerry's? My wife owns Crazy Jerry's, Brett said, grinning and holding the door open for Chase. Hey, boys, said Faith. So, wait, you two are? Yep, smiled Faith. And you, Faith, you're Crazy Jerry? She laughed. Well, technically my dad is, but he's retired. I took the store over, and I run it now. It's not a gold mine, but it pays the bills. Let's me focus on what's really important. She reached out and stroked Brett's arm, smiling sweetly. Then, as if sensing the last of Chase's confusion, she turned to him. I don't normally work the register, and I never work nights. Jolene called in sick tonight. Her arthritis was acting up. I couldn't get anybody else on short notice. Wait, Jolene is still alive? Chase cried. Nothing ever changes in Riverside, Faith laughed. Okay, come on. It's eleven o'clock. Time to go home. Chase was unsure who her remark was meant for. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pen Dust Radio. For more information or to submit your writing to the podcast, please visit pendustradio.com. This podcast is a production of Rivercliff Books and Media. Learn more at rivercliffbooks.com.
The story featured in this episode is a work of fiction. Names, characters, places, and incidents are the products of the author's imagination or are used fictitiously. Any resemblance to actual events, locales, or persons, living or dead, is entirely coincidental. 